being with us on this Sunday morning. Um, if you uh, want to open up your scripture passages to uh, Isaiah chapter 9, or open up to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7, uh, we'll be reading that here. Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. Isaiah 9, chapter, first uh, starting in verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establish and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. Lord, we pray that uh, the words that I speak would not just be my words, but would be used by your living spirit and become words of life to nourish our soul and to build us up as new creations in Christ Jesus. We pray, Lord, that something supernatural would happen as we hear your word and that our lives would be actually transformed into looking more like Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would be with us and that you would change us and seal on us that hope we have in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, uh, probably many of you have heard the name Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He was an American poet. He's probably best known for his poem, Paul Revere's Ride. I remember, I think we had to memorize part of it or he read it back in uh, middle school or elementary school. Uh, but part of what most people don't know, he was also someone who was acquainted with deep loss. Uh, his first wife died just four years into their marriage. She had a miscarriage, and she never recovered from it and ended up dying about a month later. He then remarried uh, and had six children uh, with his new wife, Frances, but through a freak accident, Frances's Victorian dress, which she was wearing, caught fire from a candle in their home and basically burned her uh, very severely with serious burn injuries. And within a day, she died. And now he was a widower with six kids. And then two years later, his eldest Charles, I think he was maybe 22 at the time, left without telling his father because his father wouldn't let him go to join the Union Army and fight in the Civil War. And you can imagine why his father wouldn't want him to go after seeing such loss in his life. And on one December morning, December 1st, he was having breakfast with his kids. And a messenger came to his door and delivered him this news that his oldest son, Charles, had been shot 
and severely wounded in a battle in the Civil War. And suddenly that Christmas was not going to be one of joy at all. And so that Christmas day when he was sitting next to his son in their home who was nearly paralyzed and was unsure if he was going to make it or not, he heard down the street the church bells ringing on Christmas Day. And he penned this poem. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and mild and sweet their songs repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And then he looked over at his son who'd been shot in the bloodiest war this country's ever known, and he continued to write, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And maybe you don't know that same deep, deep pain that he has, but all of us have known the pain of loss, the pain of not having peace. Probably more than normal this year, we feel that as so many conflicts break out across our world, and we feel that very same tension. There is no peace on earth, for hate is strong and mocks that song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. This Advent, we are doing a series called Peace on Earth with a question mark at the end of it. Peace on Earth, really? Because one of the key themes in Jesus' birth and his coming is to bring peace on earth. We're familiar with the angels' announcements. They show up to the shepherds and they say, glory to God in the highest heavens and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And yet for all these announcements of peace, we look around in our world and it is incredibly hard to see any signs of peace, not in the world, not in our own country, not only in, not in our own lives, right? Ukraine, Gaza, the upcoming election, family conflict, financial stress. And we can wonder what difference did Jesus coming actually make? Where is this peace on earth? And what I want us to see this morning is Jesus will bring peace on earth. Jesus will bring peace on earth. And we're going to look at that three ways. First, the situation. And then second, the solution. And third, the reality. So first, the situation. Our passage is a well-known Christmas passage, uh, and it's a prophecy of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah gave it for a time when the Israelites would be, or the Samaritan people, would be carried away by the king of Assyria and carted off to a foreign land. And these people will have been pulled from their homes, resettled, lost their freedom, lost their future, and been wondering, what is, has God forgotten us? We've lost everything that we have. But though they are living in darkness, God says, there will be a remnant of my people who do not lose hope, even when everything looks hopeless. In the darkness, God gives Isaiah these instructions. This is chapter 8, verse 12, right before our passage, where he tells the people, don't call conspiracy everything the people call a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. Now, when things are dark, when everything seems to be stacked against you, when you feel like the, the universe is conspiring against you, it can be very easy to think there is a conspiracy going on. Right? Why can't I get a break? Why is everything turning against me? But God is telling Isaiah, even in the middle of the darkness, don't call everything a conspiracy. Don't fear the things that they fear. Don't take the de debate to just say, oh, everything is just this way. And, and this is interesting instructions that God gives his people because they have good reasons to think there's a conspiracy against them. They've lost their homes. They're living in deep darkness. It feels like the universe has turned against them. 
And yet God says, no, don't call it a conspiracy. Don't fear what, everything, what everyone else is fearing. And again, remarkable words, given they have a lot of good reasons to fear. God's people have become refugees. They've become captives in a foreign land. And what are they to do instead? Well, chapter 8, verse 13. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And we don't have time to go into that, but it's a helpful reminder that so often our fears are rooted in seeing other things out in the world as bigger than God or more powerful than God or more in control than God is. That when we struggle with fear or with worry or even with anger, anger is often just a mass form of things of fear, how we cope with it. It's often because we don't rightly see God as big and powerful as he truly is. And so we fear all these other things. We are humans. We know we can't control things. We are going to fear something. And so it is much better to fear the one who is also good and just and loving. And then chapter 8, verse 17, God gives these instructions for the people living in the darkness. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. And he's giving these two key instructions, to wait and to trust. Even though God seems absent, even though he's hiding his face from you, even though you are in the darkness, wait and trust. Do not give up hope. And what, what a great goal for us as we come into the next year to learn how to wait and to trust in God more and more even when it's dark, even when there's no signs of things changing, to continue to wait and hope in him. And how will you know that that is working? Because you'll have less worry in your life. You'll have hope even in the deepest darkness that things won't be this way forever. And then at the end of chapter 8, it describes those who don't wait and trust. And it says, they will, become they will be overcome with darkness. They will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. It's saying there's going to be a time where it seems like darkness has blanketed the earth. People will just be overcome with the gloom. They'll be dive into utter darkness. Somebody might feel like today. But it's no surprise to history. So let's not be surprised ourselves when we feel overwhelmed by the darkness or when we discover, oh wow, it actually can get worse. See, God doesn't look down at everything that is happening and say, shoot, that's not what I was expecting. I didn't realize things could get that bad. No, this was going to happen. God spoke of it. The darkness does not surprise God. And so that then brings us to the passage we're looking at here today. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. That remnant of people who are watching and waiting on God, suddenly it's like the sun finally rises. It's like the clouds finally part and they can see the sun again. And then it says those living in the land of deep darkness. It's even more so. It's not just those who are walking in darkness, because if you're walking in darkness, well, at least you feel like you're going somewhere. You're making progress. There's a hope of getting out of it. But imagine living in a land of deep darkness. There's no hope. This is just where we live. There's no escape. Imagine living in a land where the sun never rises. 
where it's an eternal winter, but you never get to Christmas. Living in an eternal inversion where we never get to see the mountains or the sunshine again, and that is your life. You're not walking through the valley of the shadow of death. You're living in it. But for these people, a light has dawned. Hope breaks into the darkness. It's not going to be dark forever. For those who are waiting on the Lord, you won't be waiting forever. You won't live in the land of the shadow of death for eternity. But there is a day when, verse 3, God will enlarge the nation and increase their joy. They will rejoice before you as a people, rejoice at the harvest as warriors rejoice when gathering the plunder. Like the older you get, the harder it is to get really excited. The older you get, the more cynical you can become, the more just discouraged you can be as you see everything happening. But it says, discouragement won't define the end of your life. There is a day when you will laugh like a kid again. And that day is coming for those who trust in the Lord. Well, how will that day come? This is our second point, the solution. We have a series of images in verse 4. The yoke that is oppressing and controlling God's people shattered. The bar that is across their shoulders, right? This heavy burden that they're being forced to carry shattered. The rod that is used to strike the people shattered. It can never be raised to hit another person. And then even more than that, the warrior's boots are burned. If soldiers don't have shoes, they can't go out to fight. Shoes are actually really important for battle. And all their uniforms burned. The armies of oppression will be stripped of their basic necessities, all burned so they can never fight again. And how will this happen? Verse 7. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. A well-known Christmas passage. And notice even just the juxtaposition here that it talks about a child is born, a baby, a human, someone who is truly human, who is also called mighty God. There's one commentator translated it, hero God. This baby is also a mighty God. And wonderful counselor, we might miss it, but that word that is used for wonderful is a word that's only used in scripture to describe the works that God can do or even a name for God himself. Earlier on in the Bible, in the book of Judges, the angel of the Lord, which is God, it's, it's likely a pre-incarnate Jesus showing up, shows up to this man named Manoah. And Manoah asks, what is your name? And the angel of the Lord replies, God himself replies, why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. And that word for beyond understanding is the same Hebrew word here for wonderful. The baby is God himself. And the government, the rule of all the kingdoms on the earth will be laid on his shoulders. Meaning in the end, Jesus' rule will not just be a spiritual one, but the running of the world will rest on his shoulders and he will be king of kings. And he will be called Prince of Peace. And he's, he's running on a peace platform, global peace, eternal peace, so much so, so that he can be called the Prince of Peace. Verse 7, of the greatness of his government and peace, 
they will be no, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. The peace that this Messiah will establish. Well, one, it's, it's a peace that grows. It starts small, but, but his kingdom expands and takes over. But it's also a peace that is not a 24-hour ceasefire, right? a, a temporary pause in the hostilities to exchange hostages, to take a break for Christmas, whatever it might be. Where, and then, then the next day when that ceasefire expires, everyone just picks up their weapons and starts killing each other again. No, the peace that Jesus will bring is a greater peace, a peace this world has never known because even the weapons and the tools of war and the supplies of the armies and the nations will have been destroyed, that there is no longer any ability to fight. And there will be a mighty hero God who will keep the peace. It will be impossible to wage war, to have conflict. And his government will never end. What a, what a beautiful thing to think about, that no more elections, no more political drama, that there will be a good and just ruler who rules with justice and righteousness, and his dynasty will never be overturned. He will never be up for election. His term will never be over. No ups and downs of nations, no worry about the future, but he will reign forever. And to be assured of this happening, when you're surrounded in the darkness, when you're living in the valley of the shadow of death, we have the last part of the verse. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It's not dependent on how bleak things look. It's not dependent on how much effort you can put into the cause. It's dependent on how passionate God is of ushering in his kingdom of peace and beauty into the world. One commentator wrote, the zeal is that jealousy, which is a component of all true love and prominently of the Lord's love. It's the power of love that moves the Lord to make his people's cause his own cause. God is jealous for his people to have peace, to have joy, to no longer dwell in the land of darkness. God has made your suffering his suffering, your plight his plight. He won't forget you in the darkness. He won't lose track of his people. He will not think, oh, I think we got them all good enough. He has personally taken up the cause of his people to guarantee that he will make this happen. And this brings us then to that third point, the reality. So some 700 years after Isaiah spoke these prophecies, things started to stir and it seemed like the dust was being shaken off all of these Old Testament promises. For instance, Zechariah, who is the father of John the Baptist, when his son was born, he sang his song and he said, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven and to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Seems like Zechariah is meditating on these promises of old of what this Messiah will do. And he saw John the Baptist as playing a key role in ushering in those promises. And that's what just John the Baptist did. He went around saying, The kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of God is near. But then one day he found himself imprisoned 
because he stood up to the earthly authorities and said things they didn't want him to say. And so they threw him in prison. And I think John was then wrestling at that point. Surely he thought of these words from Isaiah. He will shatter the yoke that burdens God's people, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. And then John the Baptist looked down on the chains on his own hands and said, why aren't my chains being shattered? John was wrestling with this in prison. My whole job was to tell people Jesus is the Messiah. But now I'm in prison and Jesus doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. So he sends some of his disciples to Jesus to ask them this question. Are you the Messiah, the one we're to, uh, expecting, or should we expect someone else? And we can read what John is asking, because I'm still stuck in prison. There's no peace on earth. There's injustice. And Jesus, why do you not seem to care about it? And Jesus replies, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Probably not the answer John was wanting because he doesn't say anything about getting John out of prison. And not too long after that, John the Baptist is beheaded. And Jesus didn't seem to do anything to, sit, to bring peace on earth. And Jesus' disciples would struggle with this as well. Jesus talked about the kingdom is here, the kingdom is here, and, and then Jesus is killed. But then Jesus is raised from the dead, and they're like, okay, well now this is pretty cool. We have a, this is a great king, you can't kill him. Now, Jesus, they ask in Acts 1-6, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Right, let's get that government on your shoulders, Jesus. Let's get the Romans out, let's bring our good life back. We're going to, this is when it's going to kick off. And Jesus says, actually, that's not for you to know when that's going to happen. Your job is to be my witnesses. And then Jesus disappears and they don't see him again. And not very long after that, suddenly, these first Christians start getting persecuted. They're thrown in jail. They're beat up. They're stoned for their faith. Peace on earth? And then 2,000 years later, today, and with a new war breaking out every year, distrust and depression on the rise, hate and polarization only getting stronger, we wonder too, peace on earth? What difference did Jesus make? Sure, for us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. It kind of gives us warm feelings of these Christmas stories. But then when we get to all of his names, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, Prince of Peace, it can feel a bit like false advertising. What did Jesus mean when he said, or when we have these prophecies that say, I, he will bring peace on earth? Well, it's interesting because when we ask Jesus in Luke 12, 51, a passage we don't read a lot near Christmas or probably any other time, Jesus says, do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? <laughs> no. I tell you, but division. Or Luke 21, 9, Jesus is telling his disciples, this is what it's going to be like near the, as we move through history. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. And you read this, say, wait, Jesus, did you not get the memo? You're supposed to bring peace on earth. So why are you telling us to expect wars? Expect there to be violence and uprisings. What peace did Jesus bring? 
Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The peace, sorry, let me read that last part again. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The peace that Jesus brought in that first coming, we could expand it. What is the peace? Well, there's two aspects to peace. There's on one hand, there needs to be peace between heaven and earth, between God and people. But then there also needs to be peace between humanity, right? We are always fighting. We're causing conflicts. And what we see is there's an order to that peace that there cannot be peace on earth until there's peace between earth and heaven. The one must come first and then the second will come. Because if you don't have peace between earth and heaven, you'll never gain true peace on earth. It'll just be kind of painting over a, a more serious problem. Now, what peace is the needed between us and God? Well, ultimately, it's, it's sin. But what does that look like? Well, one way is, what does sin look like in our life? It's us not trusting God. It's that our hearts are naturally at war with God. Our hearts don't believe God is there for our good. We want to be God instead of humbly submit ourselves to God. We want to build our own identity based on what we feel instead of letting God define who we are. We want to live our lives without God or next to God or in the place of God. We don't trust that God's rules are for our own good. Uh, Herman Bovink writes, the organizing principle of sin is self-glorification, self-divination. And I think any problem that you have in your own life, in our society's life, it can be brought back to that idea that we want to glorify ourselves. We want to divinize, make ourselves like God. And that is the root of every problem. And that's the thing that we can't solve on our own because our hearts are wired that way. Now, maybe you think, well, I don't know if that's true of me, but it's more true of us than we realize. Now, by God's grace, when you become a Christian, he starts to rewire your heart, but naturally, we are all this way. It's our ego. It's why we're so wrapped up in ourselves all the time. Now, this takes all kinds of different forms. It's why you can't forgive yourself for the mistakes you've made in your past, why you always beat yourself up. That's your ego. It's why you're always comparing yourself to others. Well, where do I fall out? Am I doing better than them or worse than them? It's why you always keep track of all the different ways that others have messed up. And, you know, you've got a report card for all these six different people in your life. It's why you've got your own press secretary always running through your head telling you why you're right and the other person is wrong. It's why you work so hard to follow the rules because you're wanting to prove to yourself, I'm a good person. Look at all that I've done. Our ego drives so many of our good deeds. It's why it's so hard for you to admit your own weaknesses. These are all attempts to justify ourselves, to make the case to ourselves and to others and to God, oh, no, I'm worthy, I'm good. God, I can be your peer, I can be like you. But it's not a life of peace. It's a life of waking up every morning and having to prove yourself all over again because what you did yesterday provides no benefit. See, fundamentally, we are trying to live a life apart from God, to live a life next to God and maybe just call on him if we need a favor. But it's not a life of treating God as God, 
a life where you humbly submit to him and accept what he brings when you like it and when you don't like it. Where you are willing to say of God because you know that he alone is worthy, even if you can't figure out what he's doing, and you can say the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but I'll still bless the name of God. Right? And you don't do that because you think you know better than God. Why are you not doing what I think is best? And Jesus came to give you peace from that rat race. To break into your life when you are so wrapped up with justifying yourself and letting you know in the midst of all your busyness and trying to prove yourself that guess what? You're a lot worse than you realize, but you're more loved than you imagine. And Jesus came to take your sin, your ego, your pride, your failures, your rebellion, and to say, all of it is mine. And then to face the judgment of God for everything that you've done, nailing it to the cross. And then he gave you his perfect life, putting, not just bringing you back to zero, but actually filling you up to 100 with his righteousness so that you are worthy and you are beautiful and the life of Christ is shining out of you, not because of anything you've done, because we screw it up, but because of everything that Christ has done. And that is his gift to you. And you can have peace with God when you live in that place. When you know that you're accepted, even though you know you're screwed up, when you don't have to keep lying to yourself and living in denial about how bad things are. You don't even have to keep trying to put on appearances to make things look a certain way in front of others, but you can be honest, I'm screwed up, and realize God still loves me, and he's given me peace. But we still wait for Jesus to bring in that next part of that peace, to usher in an era of peace on earth in the fullest sense. And that's why Advent can be helpful, because it's a reminder that just as those people back in Isaiah's time were told, when they were living in a time of deep darkness, don't call everything a conspiracy. Don't keep fearing everything that everyone else is fearing. But to wait on the Lord and trust in Him that the Messiah is coming again. And so we wait for the Messiah's second coming. And He will bring a resurrection and will usher in that final peace on earth. Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians 15. But there's an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Right? Christ was like that first little sprout of uh, your radishes or whatever you plant in the garden in the spring. And the first sprout comes up and you say, okay, I know the garden's working. I know more plants are coming. Now it's a couple thousand years or who knows how long between that first sprout of Christ and he, when he returns and brings in the full harvest of the resurrection. But that doesn't mean it's still not a chain reaction. It's just got a long delay fuse on it. And so Paul continues, first Christ will be raised as the first of the harvest and then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power, for Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is what Christ will do. He will fight our wars. He will bring peace. He will beat the swords down. 
and we watch and we wait and we live lives of hope and faithfulness as his witnesses until that day comes. Notice back to verse 2 and 3 of Isaiah in our passage. Isaiah is speaking of these future events, but did you notice he speaks of them in the past tense, or the perfect tense? Like this is many years before this stuff happens, and yet he says, these in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned. You have increased their joy. You have shattered the yoke. He's speaking of the future and the past. It's being written as if it's already happened. That the hope we have as God's people is sure and certain. So that whatever you face, even if you're sitting by your son who's been shot, and you're not sure if he's going to live or not, and you hear those bells on Christmas Day singing out peace on earth, you realize that is a prophecy of what's going to happen, even though it can feel so far away right now. And you don't lose hope, because you know a light is coming, and he will make all things right, and there will be peace on earth. And until that point, we watch and we wait, and we're God's witnesses that a light is coming. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to watch and to wait, to not be overcome by the darkness, to not let the darkness so discourage us we give up all hope, to not let the darkness so anger us and, and give us just a loss that we try to fix it on our own and often make more problems than we end up solving. Lord, help us to be your steadfast lights in a dark world and to show people the reality that Jesus is coming and the light will rise. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.